Welcome to the TRI Research Group podcast, the latest in palliative care and end-of-life research. So today in the TRI podcast, we have Helen Butler. Welcome, Helen. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Great. So Helen is Associate Head of Mental Health and Addictions at School of Nursing, the University of Auckland, and she's also a PhD candidate. Today, Helen's going to talk to us about some of her work that she's done in the space of palliative care in people with a diagnosed mental illness. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Kia ora, everyone. Great. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your publication that um, we're going to focus some of your podcast on the podcast on today and we will be uh, leaving the listeners with a link to uh, your article which got uh, published last year 2017 2017 I know it feels like a long time ago yeah 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 (laughs) so tell us a little bit about the background of that publication I think it's probably helpful to to start is um, why I'm interested in yeah, this topic. Yeah. And I graduated nursing school a long time ago now mm-hmm. and first worked in mental health. So that was uh, so in an in a acute unit in Auckland and working with people with the diagnosis of mental illness generally mm-hmm. who come into an inpatient unit, locked ward. And, and also worked in the community in Auckland as well. And I was, it was not, what, not until I moved out into the community settings that I was starting to see people with a diagnosis of mental illness dying mm-hmm. Mm. Young, like th- in their thirties and forties, mm. um, often of heart disease, cancer, something like that. So it was um, a physical illness. It wasn't a- around suicide. And I started to kind of, it t- t- kind of just started to bug me a little bit. In between um, working in in the inpatient unit and and community in New Zealand, I and went and did a stint in Australia, and did some work over there. Worked in mental health, but I also worked in general health over there, um, and. I think a particular standout area of practice that I worked in was um, in Sydney, I worked in an AIDS ward Mm -hmm. and I was working with people who were dying um, and suffering Mm. and really stigmatised and I particularly remember a few uh, young men that I worked with who felt that they were untouchable, um, felt that they had no support um, and really was, you know, stigma and discrimination that kind of held me, I guess. And I came back to New Zealand and I cared for my grandmother who had uh, melanoma and was dying from melanoma and we looked after her at home and it was a completely different experience. So those kind of things were just aha moments um, and I, it led me to work in specialist palliative care a few, quite a few years later because I stayed in mental health for quite a while before I moved. When I started to work in palliative care, uh, I wasn't seeing people with a diagnosis of mental illness uh, on the books, you know, or people that we, we weren't um, working with people. And it's, yeah, it started to question me. You know, it started to bug me, bug mm. me. And I started on this post-grad journey and um, was thinking about a research question and that's where I started to think, look mm. into it um, and did a literature review and, boy, I was shocked what I found. So your experience really um, through your career to this point has really given you a social justice lens, hasn't it? Yeah, Which I think really it's really led me to this. Yeah. And I, um, I'm really passionate about equitable care mm. um, and that there are people in our society that are not not um, getting the same kind of care in our health system but are not getting the same um, kind of care in our society either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's broader than just palliative care, isn't it? It is. Me- yeah, it is for me. Health. And yeah. I guess this role that I've come back to in the university, so I've kind of done a full circle back into mental health and um, just taken on this associate head position this year, I'm really, it's really reawakening my uh, thinking around what mental illness is, mm. what a mental distress is. And I think, you know, coming from palliative care, 
where people's ex people have these experiences of hearing voices and uh, experiencing psychological distress, but it's seen in a very different lens. And so um, really challenge, challenging what this thing called mental illness is. Yeah. And socially, and uh, interestingly, you know, probably more comfortable for clinicians to, to manage and deal with in the palliative care space than perhaps if they were working in a mental health space. Well, and I think it's something to do with the label. Yeah. You know, I think, um, and I've talked to a lot of palliative care clinicians. It's, uh, I did another teaching session with some palliative care clinicians this year, and w they were shocked when they heard the statistics around, you know, people with mental illness dying earlier, and we're not, um, they're not coming to palliative care services, and the fear and concern around this thing, this diagnosis. But actually, in real working days, they're often working with people who are experiencing similar issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So getting back to your research question mm. you talked about, um, you mentioned just briefly, tell us a little bit more about that. So um, what led to my piece of research and then the publication was I really wanted to question, so are people, you know, is it just my anecdotal experience mm. um, that people with a diagnosis of mental illness are not accessing uh, specialist, specialist palliative care services? So I looked at it. And I wanted to look at the whole of New Zealand, but of course, you know, with the master's project, it's um, it's a little bit... Bite size, bite size. <laughs> yeah. So it eventually got... And, and it was around data, actually, the quality of data, because the quality of data capture isn't that good in some DHB. So I had to find a DHB that was going to be a, the best quality data that I So a district health board, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I, I landed on one and utilised that and found that people with a diagnosis of mental illness are three and a half times less likely to access specialist palliative care than the general population. Wow. So I kind of looked at two, yeah, did the split of two cohorts and um, did it over seven years. So it can be pretty, pretty clear that the, the research is sound on that. Mm -hmm. And how does that um, compare internationally? So um, it's pretty much the same. There was a, a Canadian study done a few year, quite a few years before and was finding around three times less likely so to access specialist palliative care services. Mm. So it, it is similar. There's not a lot of research being done in this area particularly, I have to mm. say, but it is emerging. Mm. Um, so what we don't know is, you know, so what, what services are people accessing in the last year of life? So I imagine that cohort uh, also got, also experienced inequities around accessing other healthcare services, so why wouldn't palliative care services be any different? Exactly. So, yeah. I wonder if you've got any thoughts around what why it is. What why is it that specialist palliative care is inaccessible to yeah, I think, people with um, mental illness? And, and it's an interesting thing because you know the the thinking in in palliative care is around you know di diagnosis is second, person is first. That um, oh God. <laughs> lost your train of thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So you're talking about like patient-centred care, I yeah, guess, and yeah. we, oh, we accept was... people for who they are. Yeah, and... and that, you know, that the whole, the World Health Organisation has said that palliative care is a human right. Yeah, yeah. Yet we know that there's certain groups that are not accessing yeah. uh, specialist palliative care. So I think, this, you know, for people with diagnosis mental illness are just one of those groups. Mm. And I found in the research that I did that the, the cohort, the group of people that I was looking at that had that diagnosis of mental illness were more likely also to be Māori and they were more likely to be living, you know, in uh, higher deprivation, experiencing higher de deprivation. So this is why I'm kind of looking at this intersectionality mm. aspect because I think we don't uh, we don't just discriminate on one area, we discriminate maybe on more than that. 
Yeah. yeah, and it's not often just one factor. It's multiple yeah. factors that all have to occur for the inequity or the yeah. inaccessibility to occur. Yeah. Or one, even just one or other or all. Yeah, it's complex. Um, and, and in my article, I kind of looked at, I teased it out to person factors, yeah. health professional factors and health system factors. So it is really complex. I don't think there's ever going to be one no. answer. So um, you, you mentioned right at the beginning around stigmatisation in relation to um, people with AIDS and, you know, and how this led you to perhaps stigmatisation of people with mental illness. Um, what is our responsibility or what is how do we contribute to that as healthcare professionals working in palliative care, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a level of unconscious bias and there's a level of conscious bias as well. You know, we all say, we all talk as health professionals that we're not judgmental, but, uh, you know, the, the longer I've been working as a nurse and, and, and thinking about this stuff is we're humans first and humans are built basically to have bias. Mm. Um and if we don't start addressing that we do have bias uh, or acknowledging that we do and then uh, being able to put that aside, then I think that makes it a really tricky point mm. um, because, you know, research shows that we do as health professionals think that we're unbiased, but actually when it plays out in practice that we are. Yeah, and I do think that I wonder if people who are attracted to, and I include myself in this because being a palliative care clinician for many, many years, is that we're attracted to palliative care because we think it's we can we can care for everybody, mm. regardless of their social situation or their ethnicity or and actually in doing that, of going in with that thought, we're not being explicit about what our potential bias is. Mm. And um, that in itself can be a barrier. You talked a little bit about the socio, the, mo the more likely um, people with mental illness, more likely to be living in deprivation, more likely to um, be Māori. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Because, I mean, there are lots of complicated factors about that in itself. Yeah, and I am looking into this more in my PhD. That's kind of the purpose of where I'm delving more. But um, just coming from a social determinants of health perspective, we know that um, the diagnosis of mental illness is associated with um, the kind of downward spiral in, in, a, in our social scale, if you like. So um, the you know, just getting a diagnosis of mental illness means you're less likely to get a job. And so therefore, that's going to create lots more difficulties and roll-on effects. We know in our, you know, the whole... Um, the idea that people with a uh, diagnosis of mental illness are more likely to, to be Māori is not an unknown fact. We know that people who are Māori are more likely to be diagnosed with mental illness uh, in New Zealand, and we know that they're more likely to have to be um, uh, under the Mental Health Act. So um, there's huge inequities within that, right? Why is that? Why? Why? Well, again, it's an, <laughs> it's another complex. So, for our international listeners, uh, Maori are our indigenous population yes. of New Zealand. Yeah, um, and we have a legal um, uh, obligation to um, to care for our indigenous people through the treaty. Yes, and yet we have very poor health outcomes um, between Maori and non Maori. But I'm really interested in what you're saying about more likely to yeah. be diagnosed with a mental illness. And this is a worldwide issue. So indigenous and minority groups are more likely to have to, to catch, if you like, a diagnosis wow. of mental illness. And there's, this really puts a spin on this whole biomedical understanding of mental illness 
that it's a chemical imbalance. Yeah, in you and brain. I've talked about this, and it's <laughs> fascinating. I'm really interested in it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was taught in nursing school that, yeah. that um, mental illness was a chemical imbalance in your brain. But actually, there's been no um, research to date that has found any biomarkers uh, of genetic more likelihood to gain mental illness or to get mental illness compared to catch other. it. Yeah, I know. I'm going to say That's catch weird, because yeah. it's weird. But um, it's often more associated with trauma um, and it's often more associated with other things that are happening in our society that are unrecognised. Right. So we know that people in our mental health system, uh, you know, 90%, at least 90% of people have experienced trauma. Wow. But yeah, it's not really associated. It's not linked as, okay, it's what's happened to you has led to this period of distress you know, we, we're kind of just saying we're gonna, you're going to have this diagnosis of mental illness and we're going to give you some medication for it. So then if we move away from the biomedical model of mental illness, how would you conceptualise mental illness? Well, that's the exciting thing because then you can start to think about a cultural understanding of mental distress. Mm. You can start to understand um, a social construction understanding of mental illness. You can start to understand a more humanistic understanding of mental illness, what's happened to you in your life has led to this experience. And some of these behaviours that we find distressing, such as people hearing voices or even people self-harming to some extent, have been helpful to that person in the past when they've been experiencing something like trauma. So perhaps initially it was a a safety strategy or a strategy to keep them safe and then it became a negative negative thing. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting for me not being a mental Mm. health um, experts at all but yeah. it sort of makes sense really yeah. um, particularly when we see you know those sort of statistics for our indigenous people. I guess what I'm really passionate about is for people to be aware that mental illness is not you know people with a diagnosis of mental illness it's it's just they've, they've captured this diagnosis of mental illness and we know that people who are in mental health services longer and longer catch different diagnosis right mm, yeah um, so there's something about the validity validity of diagnosis in itself, but I, I really need to kind of, um, I want people to think about that mental illness is just on the spectrum of mental distress, mm. and we all experience mental distress at mm. some point in our mm, life. Mm, mm. It's just some people get this diagnosis compared to others. And getting back to the whole issue of stigmatisation mm. and labelling then, when you get labelled with a diagnosis, it sort of sticks then, yes. doesn't it, for the rest of your life in yes. some ways? You can't get rid of a diagnosis of mental illness once you get one. And um, once you're diagnosed with something, it stays in your health record forever. And we in society have this perception about what mental illness is, and it's, of course, perpetuated in the media that, you know, people with a diagnosis of mental illness are more likely to be violent, they're more likely to be unpredictable, you know, they don't have capacity to have, you know, make decisions about their own, their care. So then in itself... We, as health professionals who are part of society, have this perception, and so we're less likely to engage with people. We're less less likely to connect with them as we would with somebody without a diagnosis. Mm. So then that goes right back to what we were talking about before about our responsibility as healthcare professionals to be explicit about Mm. um, the fact that we are part of a community, we're part of society which has a long history of um, stigmatising um, people with mental health illness, a long, long history, right yeah. back to, you yeah. know, Victorian times when you remember the old red brick institutions where people were um, were placed. Locked at, away right in the country. 
Yes, that's right, where nobody had to really see it or, or introduce it. So when to next with your PhD? What? So um, this is this in- interesting part because, as I said, I'm really interested in focusing on person and this idea of intersectionality mm. really helps to understand that because we do categorise people. We People have, you know, but people are multiple series of identities and if they have more than one maybe stigmatised identity, then that maybe is part of an part mm. of the issue. Mm. But I, yeah, I, you know, and the difference within categories or a difference within identity. So I'm really um, kind of challenging that or using intersectionality to challenge this thing that we have about identities and yeah, categorising yeah. people. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting, really interesting. And um, so I think we're going to wrap that up. Thank you very much for um, doing uh, this podcast. And every time I talk to you, Helen, I learn a lot. And oh. I really do mean that. So um, that's really interesting. So I really look forward to the day when we can call you Dr. Helen Butler and, and read your thesis. Yes, thank you. Yes. It soon. feels like a long way away. Yeah. You talked to me about it being a tunnel and it does. It is, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll get there in the end. It's a slow plot. So look, we finish each of these podcasts with a special question and um, it's got nothing to do with your PhD research, mm. but it's just a way of uh, wrapping things up. Um, I'd like you to think, you know, you've heard about this whole bucket list thing, hey? Oh, you've yeah. worked in palliative care long enough to understand that. And I want you to share with the listeners today, um, if you had 24 hours left mm. and you were able to stay really healthy, but you knew, you know, you had 24 hours, what's the one thing you would do? Ah, oh, it's got to come back to what's important in your life, doesn't mm. it? And I, for me, it's family. Yeah. So I have two children. Well, I say children. They're not children anymore. They're 18 and 21. But it would be around spending some time with them, you know, um, and that's really what's important to me and, and my partner and my mum. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And I think with this whole COVID thing, families become, you realise it's a little tenuous, particularly yeah. when with this global sure. population we have. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Thanks Helen. Jackie. Cool. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like to know more about TRI, please go to our website. The link is in the description.